WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to the Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series that explores student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Madi Dowling and Dimitri Joseph. Today we have Ben Klein with us to discuss his research. Ben, if you don't mind, could you just introduce yourself and give us a little background about your research? Hi, everyone. My name is Ben Klein, and I am a current graduate student in the Department of Integrative Biology and the Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior Program at MSU. I'm also a member of the Meek Conservation Genomics Lab, and I'm excited to be here today to talk about my research applying genomic tools to answer questions about climate change and species conservation. This has been a hot topic. It's been a hot topic for probably a few decades now. But what is climate change and how does it affect fish? That's the question of the hour, isn't it? <laughs> and... The question of the century probably now, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We think of climate change in a lot of different ways in our work, and I think a lot about thermal tolerance. We know that environments are changing, and temperatures are on the rise across the board, and species are constantly adapting to changing conditions, but the way and mechanisms through which that adaptation is occurring is something that is a little bit unknown to a lot of scientists. So our research is interested in, at the genetic level, what's going on that enable organisms to adapt to these different and changing environments. You mentioned thermal tolerance a little bit ago. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that is. When we think about thermal tolerance and climate change, I think automatically a lot of us think, oh, things are getting hotter, which is true, but things are also getting more unstable. And that's a big proponent of climate change that we think about when we think about how species are going to respond to novel conditions. When we are thinking about thermal tolerance, we're thinking about what traits are currently present in a population that may enable them to survive under changing conditions. So maybe that we go out and sample a population and we find that the fish from this creek seem to have much higher cardiac efficiency, like their heart rate works really well when conditions are really hot or really cold or variable just in general. That might be a trait that is important to survival. What type of species and what impact of climate change are you interested in? I'm working primarily with brook trout in my research, which are an incredible model organism for understanding the response of cold water fish to climate change. There's two systems that I'm primarily working in for my research. One is the native species range of brook trout, which encompasses most of the eastern United States, south into Georgia, and then up into Canada, and then west about to the Great Lakes region where we are. A subset of my research also focuses on brook trout in the Great Lakes region in Lake Superior. One thing I'm interested in investigating is a unique life history form of brook trout that only occurs in Lake Superior, and it's called the coaster brook trout. These are brook trout that use Lake Superior as a habitat, not just the rivers that feed into it where most of the other brook trout in the region are endemic to. I'm curious to know, how are you measuring the coaster brook trout adaptability in these climate change models? That's a great question. With coaster brook trout, we're really starting at square one. There's a lot that we don't know about the species, this unique life history form at least. 
in our work, we are really interested in understanding where posterior birth trout are being produced and if there's any unique genetic variation that causes a fish to engage in this coaster life history, moving out from a safe haven in a river where you were born and spending your life in a huge lake that's a novel and completely different environment that you never experienced before. Being that your research is in the context of climate change and adaptability, are there any unique features or differences between brook trout and other trouts? Brook trout do have some similar habitat requirements to other trout and salmon species. Trout as a whole are a cold water fish species, so they require that water temperatures stay cool for at least a good portion of the year in order to complete their life cycle. Brook trout lay their eggs in the fall, and then those eggs actually overwinter and hatch in the subsequent year. So it's important that water temperatures stay cool. Brook trout also need a clean and well-oxygenated environment to lay their eggs when they spawn. So it's important that the riverbed or streambed that they're reproducing in has clear and clean water and substrate that isn't impounded by things like sediment or other pollution that would prevent the eggs from hatching. Are there any other environmental concerns that can affect the quality of the trout habitat? We're constantly thinking about habitat quality and the importance of the landscape to the health of our rivers and our streams that the brook trout that we study persist in. As I mentioned, brook trout do require pretty clean and pristine habitat in order to complete their life cycle. And under climate change and anthropogenic change in general, we're seeing a lot of land use alteration, which is resulting in habitat degradation in streams that brook trout would be existing in or historically have existed in. We're finding that as land use changes or habitat is destroyed, these freshwater habitats are becoming less pristine, and that's largely a result of things like urbanization and the development of forested lands into agriculture. Do you have any insight as to how adaptations as a result of heat stress might differ from adaptations that result from those other stressors that you described? That's a great point because when we think about heat tolerance and overall persistence of a population, it seems like many aspects of those questions are inextricably linked. If you're able to survive a stressful environment, whether that's from heat stress or from poor habitat quality or from constantly fluctuating flows, if you're able to survive, you're more likely to reproduce and pass on your unique genetic variation to the subsequent generation. So while heat stress is one important aspect of a species' persistence under climate change, it won't be the only thing that matters. And I think in climate change research as a whole, there's definitely been a paradigm shift from just focusing on warming temperatures to focusing on stress as a whole. Environments aren't just getting warmer, they're becoming more unstable. They're being exposed to new conditions or things like novel pollutants or fluctuations in extreme weather, for example. And so overall, we are focused on conserving genetic variation because genetic variation is the building block for any trait or adaptation that may arise in a species. In our work, we're thinking about conservation and we're thinking about conserving as much 
variation and as much unique genetic variation as possible because we don't know what the future holds and those fish don't either. And so maintaining as much unique or standing variation as possible will give these species the best chance to persist under these new conditions. Could you explain a little bit further about how these genetic variations and traits play a role in species survival and a long-term adaptation? If we think about evolution and natural selection, selection can only act on variation that is present within a population. And so if we're thinking about genetic variation, you need to have the genes or the unique genetic variation present before you can determine if it would be beneficial or maladaptive, for example. One thing that we think about a lot in ecology is this idea called the portfolio effect. If you think about the stock market, when you make a portfolio, you want to have a variety of different stocks and mutual funds. That way, all of your eggs aren't in one basket. Well, species do the same thing, and we see a lot of unique variation among populations and different life histories. Individuals that use different ways to survive or different life histories, the more variation that's present in a system, the more stable that system is likely to be over time. So if one stock or one population isn't doing very well, maybe another population is having a really successful year. And as a whole, the species will carry on even if certain populations or certain subsets of that species are not doing as well. Some will make up for that. As part of my research, I worked with my lab and some of our collaborators to develop a genomic tool that will allow us to pull out any brook trout across the species range, take a tissue sample, and use this genomic panel to get an idea for how likely this fish is to be impacted by climate change based on the amount or unique genetic variation that is present in that fish. How did you collect the samples to create this genomic tool? Our work by nature is incredibly collaborative, and in order to address questions at the scale and the level that we do in our lab, it takes a lot of effort from folks across the state and even across the country. For some of the work that I'm working on, we have a rich network of collaborators and stakeholders across the Great Lakes region, including state agencies like the Michigan DNR, federal agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and tribal organizations like the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. In order to get all of the samples and all of the fish that we do, it takes a lot of work from all of those folks, and we're really grateful to have built those relationships and are continuing to build them. What our day-to-day -day looks like in sample collection is our partners will work with us to go out into lakes or rivers or even the Great Lakes and they'll use a variety of different methods to sample fish, whether it's on a boat or with something we call a backpack electrofishing unit. And they'll go and they'll sample fish from all these incredible places. And then when they catch a fish, they'll just take a small tissue sample from the fin and the fin will grow back. So it's a non-lethal and really effective way to get tissue from a lot of individuals. That tissue is archived and sent to our lab where we begin to process it using different genomic techniques. Could you describe how you take a sample and process it for genomic data? Yeah, absolutely. It all starts with just a tissue sample collection, and that tissue is then brought to a lab, and at that lab, we take the tissue and extract the DNA from it using some different lab protocols. 
After the DNA is extracted, we use a variety of techniques to process that DNA to get a representative sample across the whole genome of the genetic variation in that individual. With that sample, we submit it to a facility where they use technology called next-generation sequencing to actually read the DNA to tell us the content of the genome. That essentially is giving us the data that we use to process down the line, which is just a series of all of the nucleotides within the DNA in that series of ATCG over and over and over, 2.3 gigabases in the fish genome. We don't sequence all of it, of course, but we get a subsample of that. And from that data, we can then infer small differences between individuals that make them unique, make them more or less likely to be able to adapt and make predictions about how we think those individuals will persist in the future. So how do you go and analyze this huge data set? To work with and analyze this data, we use a lot of computing resources. We use a tool known as the High-Powered Computing Cluster, the HPCC, which is a resource that's available at MSU. And we take these data and we pretty much follow a uniform workflow where we do a bunch of quality control and filtering to make sure that everything in that genome or in that data is actually unique genetic variation and not some missed call or sequencing error. We take all of that data and we align it to a reference genome. We use the genus Salvolinus, which is the genus that brook trout are in, as a reference genome. And from that, we're able to generate a data set that has information about the unique genetic variation contained in all of those individuals or populations. What are reference genomes, and why do some fish have them while others don't? Reference genomes are a big topic in conservation biology and conservation genetics right now. Your question about why do some have them and some don't is really at the forefront of something that we think about a lot as well. It really boils down to the resources available and the interest in using or working with that genome or that specific species. A really interesting example of this comes from rainbow trout. Rainbow trout were one of the first salmonid trout or salmon species to have a reference genome, and that's because of their importance in commercial aquaculture. Rainbow trout is sought after for the meat, and so a lot of fish hatcheries are raising and producing rainbow trout because of demand, and so there's this hubbub and this interest to create a reference genome for the rainbow trout because they're commercially important species and there are a lot of questions about can we make them bigger, can we make them grow faster, can we improve our production essentially. We're hopeful that as more genomic resources become available and more affordable that more species will have a reference genome available to it. I have to plug the work of an incredible scientist from MSU, Dr. Seth Smith. As part of his dissertation research, he actually worked to develop a reference genome for the lake trout, which has really just been monumental for the work in our lab and the work of many other scientists. Thank you, Ben, for, for speaking with us today. One final question. Could you just give us a brief description or history of how you first started in this field? I went into undergrad knowing that I was interested in science, but I wasn't quite sure where that would take me. And I was trying to find this, like a job in an undergrad research lab to try to oh, gain some experience, you know, it'll make you marketable, all this stuff. And I found a job 
as an undergrad research assistant with the United States Geological Survey. And I was confused because why is the geological survey studying fish? <laughs> but they were researching trout and I joined a research lab and my first project was literally to sit in front of a computer watching these videos of fish swim around in a tank. And for my undergrad research project, I watched 30 hours of these videos. And somehow that convinced me that fisheries research was for me. And so um, that was kind of my first experience in research. And so I went on and wanted to go to grad school and I started a master's and I thought I had it all figured out and I knew what research project I wanted to do. And I went to this meeting and I proposed my research and the grad student that talked right after me proposed basically the same exact project. And I said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? So we were in the car driving back and I was talking to my advisor and he said, you know, he wants to do that project, but we have something that you could work on that is in genomics. And it's something that we don't have anyone else that was planning to cover this bit of research. So why don't you do your dissertation on genomics? And I said, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't think he did either, but we'll give it a try. <laughs> And we did, and that's what brought me into the world of genomics today and helped me really get a, an appreciation for the research that I'm doing and the, the impact that it can have on conservation. Well, great. I'm happy that the U.S. Geological Surveys <laughs> found you. And, and now you're, you're teaching us about how fish are adaptable to this impending threat of climate change. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to us and telling us about your research, and we look forward to hearing more about it hopefully in the future. Thank you for having me.